evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss Life and Limb from 2001's The Argument is a musician and producer probably best known as a member of RX Bandits and who has his own podcast called The Musicians Guild. Steve Choi, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, coming on here. So we both started our podcasts last year. How's that podcast life been treating you so far, Steve? Um, it's been quite good, to be honest. It's a brand new endeavor. So there was a lot of fear and insecurities to overcome that I'm still working through. But uh, what I've gotten out of the process of making it and what I've been learning about myself, as well as the really sort of earnest and positive feedback I've been getting from people around me has made the whole thing like a really positive experience. So I'm grateful. And uh, overall, I'm just super lucky. It's been great. Yeah, I absolutely second everything you said there. I, I feel every one of those things for sure. Um, and I got to say, you have a lovely, soothing podcast voice and great sound quality. This is probably going to end up being one of those episodes where my guest sounds better than I do. So, um, yeah, (laughs) recommended. Do you want to tell listeners to this show what the Musicians Guild is all about? Um, Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, centered around the name where it's a forum of keeping everything music-centric, but I in particular have a real fascination with the kind of nuances of the psychology and sociology of everybody's involvement and path in music in various ways. So I talk to everyone from, you know, a specific instrumentalist musicians, uh, touring road crew, uh, A&R from different record labels and, uh, all the different kind of characters around the universe of music. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, um, I've I've been able to talk to people on this podcast to play instruments that I'm not familiar with, and that's always so fascinating. Like I, <laughs> I always feel like I learn something. I sometimes feel like things are going over my head, um, but it's just it's great to hear those things and uh, sort of get an inside view of how those people approach music. Yeah, that's cool, and it's really cool that you've had so many different instrumentalists on a podcast about Fugazi because. I also think it's a testament to the band's music and uh, the type of musical minds they attract. Yeah, I mean, so to get into Fugazi and you as a musician in particular, um, I was just thinking about this earlier when thinking about this song that we're going to discuss today and your own guitar playing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like you played uh, Les Paul with RX Bandits for many years, right? Um, yes, that's but, right. But like mm-hmm. you're, you're more recent. Uh, there's been like you've been playing jazz master parts, and that reminds me of Guy a little bit. Like that, there's that piercing, cleanish tonality, like akin to the Rickenbacker, like a little surfy sounding. While Matt's playing uh, humbuckers and sounding a little more like Ian. Is it is that something you took from Fugazi consciously or subconsciously? Uh, that's very astute because. Uh, totally consciously and 110%. Uh, they were some of our biggest influences, not just musically, but in our whole musical ethos, in how we approached our live show, everything. It informed so much. And uh, specifically to speak to what you were saying, the interplay of those guitar tones and uh, sort of my 
guitar tone that and mats that we were always uh, kind of striving for is totally based on uh, Fugazi and their own sort of arc of the change in their guitar tones throughout the records. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really fascinating, and yeah, the, the way they construct their songs is so inspirational. How like they they mesh they mesh together extremely well while having while every uh, musician is like has his own identity and is you can easily sort of pick it apart um, especially once you learn to listen for uh, for certain things you can be like oh that's definitely that's ian playing this part that's Gee playing this part they they can teach you how to be in a band in a really effective way yeah i i agree um i have my own visualization of of that uh you were mentioning which is that it's like a spectrum of Gee and Ian and the uh, like Joe and Brendan are the glue because as a rhythm, as a bass drum duo, they play together so well, um, you know, and then we have those songs and pieces of music where you can hear a total collaboration. But I feel like now I can kind of tell the difference where the impetus of the song was like uh, started with like a particular person, you know? Yeah, I often think I can, at least I imagine, I can tell how things started out. Um, we, I think we definitely have to talk about the uh, the cash-out cover that uh, that you guys did in RX Bandits. Uh, that was, I think, a 2014 covers EP? Um, yeah. How, how did you guys approach that? Well, um, the reason is we've always loved uh, jamming Fugazi as literally it being one of our favorite bands of all time and will always be. So a few years prior, uh, we were playing a festival on the East Coast, and this particular festival had a special sideshow uh, where bands do cover sets. So we did a show uh, where we did a Fugazi cover set, and we played it with Thrice and Newfound Glory. So it was just us three bands, like Thrice did a Hot Water Music set, and I... a newfound glory did like a ramon set that sounds really cool <laughs> yeah we we picked like the most obscure love of ours so we did a fugazi cover set so already we had 30 minutes only and it was so fun for us to do it that we learned enough songs for like an hour set you know we just like picked and just whittling it down to an hour's worth of fugazi songs was so hard for us like throwing out like <laughs> all these in on the kill taker songs we love and like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so we had all these songs in our repertoire already, you know, I would sing the Gee songs and Matt would sing the Ian songs. And, uh, when we decided to do a covers EP, we knew we wanted to do a Fugazi song and it was just so hard to pick, but we ultimately chose cash out, uh, because I think that, although we had been Fugazi fans for a long time, where they sort of crescendoed at the argument uh, musically was so powerful to us that it was one of the songs that spoke spoke to us as a band and informed our style in RX so much that um, is, I think that's why we ultimately chose it. And it's just really, really fun to play that song. It is really fun. One, uh, I did shout out that cover in the cash out episode uh, a while back. Um, oh, cool! And uh, I, I think if what I what I remember saying is um, it's it, like it's a very faithful cover, right? You guys, you have your own little touches, 
overall, though, it's it's very much like it takes from Fugazi. It doesn't uh, tinker with the formula too much. And I was thinking, I've never been in a band myself that covered Fugazi, but I always had the thought that it would be very hard to cover one of their songs and change it a lot. Like, there's so much in the... It seems like there's so much in the composition, the instrumentation, the way that they did it, that like that is so much the heart of a lot of these songs, um, more so than than a looser uh, song that you could play around with, change the tempo, change the instrumentation. Do you totally. do you feel that? One thousand percent. I think you said it so well and so concisely. Uh, you when you really appreciate the songs, and I can't say this for many bands, but. Uh, specifically Fugazi, they're so intentional about every single thing. As soon as you become familiar with their process and how much control over every aspect of their recordings they have always retained, you understand that every noise, every feedback squeal, every pick rake, every sort of room mic slap delay, it's all so intentionally placed that when you are finally at the moment where you're learning the song and really... And when you learn people's parts, you become so much closer to their minds, at least creatively. Hmm. Uh, when we reached that nexus, so to speak, it was like the desire to do that in a Fugazi song wasn't even there for us. And right. yeah. already as musicians, we are quite greedy. Our expanded music is very uh, full and dense. A lot of time signature, key changes, many notes being played. But our appreciation of Fugazi at that point for the grooves, the parts, the real thoughtful, intentional nature of everything, almost to the point of classical music, uh, which I've studied at length myself, but uh, is so, like I was saying many times, intentional that it you just, it wasn't there. It, the, the beauty was in playing the song and that was like the honor for us. It wasn't because we felt like we could improve it or add anything to it. Yeah, I I absolutely imagine approaching things the same way uh, were I to cover Fugazi. So, yeah, uh, very relatable. Um, I should ask, uh, as like as a fan, did you get a chance to see Fugazi when they were playing? Sure did. I saw them on End Hits Tour in 1999 mm-hmm. um, in Watsonville, California, which is a small town of 20,000 people uh, about an hour and a half south of San Francisco outside of Santa Cruz and uh, Vets Hall, like they were doing that whole tour. And it was life-changing, still one of the most important shows I've ever been to in my life. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the great things about how Fugazi toured. Like, were th- do any other bands that big ever go to Watsonville, California? Hmm. And still draw 2,000 people yeah. <laughs> in the middle yeah. of nowhere? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's... It's it was such a privilege for those of us who got to see them. So, um, yeah, congrats to yeah. you, sir. <laughs> no, thank you. I feel honored. And and the way they did that tour was like they just went out by themselves. They had local openers everywhere, you know, running yeah. the show themselves. Like, I'm sure I don't need to explain it. Anybody who would be listening to the podcast has watched the documentary. You know what I mean? They know what's up, right? Yeah. But I look back on it now and without kind of like romanticizing it in in a glory daysification of it like it for reals was super fucking special and still like one of the most important live show experiences and i've played a lot of shows myself now and it's like that still stands out as being one of the most impactful for me yeah it's beautiful that's that's like the heart of 
why this podcast exists really it's um if i hadn't felt the same way i probably wouldn't have bothered even as great as the records are it's like those experiences seeing them live that really puts it over the top totally and i was so excited to do this podcast and uh you know uh, for that same reason <laughs> nice well it's great to have you here talking about life and limb from the arguments um a couple of remarks just by way of introducing this song I think the notable thing that uh, people would pick out as being sort of separate from most Fugazi songs is there is some uh, guest backing vocals on this one, courtesy of Bridget Cross from Unrest, and mm-hmm. uh, who also was in, I think, the very earliest incarnation of Velocity Girl, uh, but she's better known as being the bassist for Unrest. And there is a Pitchfork interview with Guy that I've cited a couple of times before in this podcast, but uh, he actually talks about that. And so he says, quote, I actually had written the song Life and Limb with Bridget in mind singing against me because I've worked with her a lot in the past. I produced some tapes that she did and I've had her sing on projects that I was recording before. Like, well, we played together in this band called Mighty Flashlight for a little while. The interviewer says, oh, right, with ex rights of Spring bassist Mike Fellows. Is that post unrest? He says, yeah, it was after Unrest. We're friends, and I've always thought her voice was incredible. I mean, it really records in a way that's like no other vocalist I've ever heard. When she's in front of a mic and you're recording, it's eerie. She can really nail it. When I wrote the song, I heard her voice kind of doing the call and response part, and it was great that it worked out. She just came in one day and nailed it. End quote. So that's pretty cool. My other small note is that a friend of the show, Nick Pelicciotto, Fugazi's live sound man, uh, told me that he mixed this one, actually. Um, uh, the credits in the album say that like mixing was done by Fugazi and, and Don, uh, but I, I think he, he really played a, a large role in mixing this one. So shout out to Nick P. So other than those introductory remarks... I really like to hand it over to my guest for just deciding where we should start with this one. So, Steve, what do you think? Life and limb. What should we talk about first? Oh, man. <laughs> well, for me, I always viewed life and limb as being separate, but being attached to Epic Problem, the song right before it. Right. Um, just because... Um, without going too deep into it, like Epic Problem, I feel like is one of, for me, one of the Fugazi rockin', like the rockers that moves me the most, especially with the sort of end piece and the catchiness of the the melody. And uh, I always am rocking out so hard at the end of that, that when this totally different drum sound and life and limb comes in with this very sort of drum beat ish programmed style of like drum beat, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it always felt like such a cool come down from Epic problem. Like specifically it starts at life and limb and then you have a stretch of like three songs that are on the mellower side right there as a block after like the opening of the argument. And we often think about our album, uh, song order in similar ways where, we don't look at them individually. We kind of try to get into the mind of what would be enjoyable when you're listening to this album as a whole. And one of the things I love about Fugazi is like, I feel like they've always done that as well. True. Um, and they, they certainly did it on the argument because the way it flows, like the actual order of the whole album 
is impeccable. And I would say the same for end hits as well. Um, so I always viewed it as kind of like this really nice cool down to Epic Problem. It's got a totally different vibe and uh, on a recording sense too, I just really love the sound of like the dampened snare drum. Obviously they have like a t-shirt or a towel on it. Same with the floor tom that he's kind of riding the eighth note on for the beat. Right. And uh, that's uh, that interplay between the end of how Epic Problem ends at like full board with these hits, like these octaves, like and then it goes into that. Like I've always loved that. It's very much like a live show that way, right? The the way the record is sequenced. Um, you want to end your huge energetic number, maybe go into a mellower one. Yeah. The totally. way this the way this recording begins too mimics that to me because I feel like Epic Problem ends. The first thing that really happens on this is sort of like a test chord, as if as if uh, Guy had just finished tuning his guitar, which is like yeah. very much resonates to me with what you would do at a show like you're slamming your guitar doing this loud number then okay okay time to tune a little bit test test out do a little chord then start the next song which is exactly how the song begins yeah and you know they probably had a lot of that and yet they sat and out of all the things and little bits of noise they intentionally chose that you know and it's like it's so cool it only comes in on the right channel where that guitar part is living and then so immediately when you're listening in headphones, you get that little guitar noodle in your right side. And then following, you think your headphones are messed up for a second. And then all of a sudden the beat comes in and you get it in stereo. And it's like, ah. Yeah. And al- although it doesn't, doesn't really fully give up the goods for a while, this song really rests for a long time on just Guy and Brendan uh, playing with each other, which is not like, as we've said before in the show, they're kind of a unit unto themselves, Guy and Brendan. They're like a special little team. Um, so it's cool to hear them sort of holding it down for a lot of the beginning of this song, especially. And then the rest of the band kicks in a bit later. Yeah, that is really cool. Uh, and when the bass guitar eventually does come in, it's really cool groove with just the toms and the bass part that if you slowed it down and played it with less good rhythm and less good <laughs> less good groove it could actually be like lifted into a godsmack song or something but when you play it with the swagger of the the you know Joe Lally and Brendan together like that special magic it's like it works it's a really cool baseline isn't it it's not it sounds more uh, more complicated than it is right because it's just three notes really but it's really three, just three notes, notes yeah. played against a four-four meter. So he's like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. So it's it takes those three notes and just sort of butts it up like a square peg in a round hole against the rhythm of the song, and it really ends up sounding quite groovy. And it just sounds like yeah, Joe is kicking ass all over the song. Yeah, that's uh, you bring up a good point. I think it's a really. Uh, significant achievement to keep a groove engaging when it's those kind of three notes and then eventually when that part comes around again there's that guitar part that also just doubles or triples that that rhythm you know or or i guess just doubles it with the bass and even then it still just adds to the vibe of the song and i think that just speaks to what i was uh, saying earlier about everything being so thoughtful and intentional even the simplest seeming things I think as you get more into 
um, a creative headspace and like create things yourself, you you recognize that in a lot of works of art that like oh nothing's accidental like this film like that that thing isn't in the shot by mistake. Um, yeah. Although, of course, there are famous cases where it is, but <laughs> for the most yeah. part, um, I remember seeing. I think it was some Ingmar Bergman film. There's like a shot where a car pulls up to a house. There's sort of like a cat in the middle of the frame who like sort of scurries out of the way as the car pulls up. And then there was like behind the scenes things on this DVD or whatever I was watching. And it was like they they, were, they kept doing the shot again and again to get the cat to do exactly what they wanted. And it's, it's kind of like, oh man, they, that wasn't just purely accident. They were... <laughs> this was intentional like what's it for it didn't result in anything it's not like there's a climactic scene where the cat got run over later and it's like a Chekhov's gun sort of thing it's just a creative choice that they wanted in the film and I mean that's rambling but all of which is to say like yeah there are no accidents um, really as far as the things they choose to put in the song and put in the recording that's true I think that's a good point but I I do uh, out of fairness to them as human beings and in which, you know, I, I, I can certainly sense that them as a band are always trying to humanize themselves. Um, I'm sure they do have those sort of serendipitous, happy accidents too, that they've left in because they obviously don't lack a sense of humor yeah, as right, serious right. as they are perceived <laughs> and as serious as we perceived them in our youth. You know what I mean? But, yeah. uh, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't put that past them. They're yeah, musically guess- talented enough. Yeah, I guess the better way to say it is accidents happen, but what's not a mistake is choosing to include it in the recording. Oh, yeah, I yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, 1000%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what I was saying before about, you know, you and Matt and your guitar tones when you're playing the jazz master, I think that really comes to the fore in this song among among others, but yeah, it strikes me that Guy's guitar part in this song uh, you know, the rules are made to be broken and everything. You can use any guitar to play anything. But, you know, if you subscribe at least somewhat to, like, a certain guitar is good for a certain kind of thing, like, this is really the sort of thing that a Rickenbacker is, is good for. It's a little bit jangly, a little bit clean. He's it's he's playing this nimble sort of interesting um, line that that is really nice. And then when Ian's guitar comes in later, it's... He he's backing up Guy, but he's he's sounding like fuzzier, right? Yeah, when he comes in with the power chords over uh, Guy's Nintendo uh, guitar solo <laughs> in the bridge, which I love. Um, that's yeah. that's an interesting way to put it. A Nintendo guitar solo. Yeah. Can you speak on that? What what makes it sound like Nintendo to you? I guess basically the melody. He's kind of moving in bigger he's kind of moving in more blocked intervals um and with the chord progression it i don't know it just reminds me of early nintendo video game music that's so interesting from the 80s yeah Yeah. no i get that um i think if i were to try and break it down objectively i probably wouldn't have that strong of a case but for me you know also you know how these sort of um associations with a taste or a sound like music or food that we make uh oftentimes the initial one we get right when hearing something or tasting something for the first time is that is really strong and it sticks with you and i definitely think that's one of them for that part of life and limb yeah that's really cool observation i i think i can see what you mean 
the, it's yeah the, the way the the guitar sound is processed is interesting there's like it sounds to me like there's some kind of modulation effect happening like a very subtle chorus or flanger um you're you're more of an audio expert did do you have like do you have an idea of did you hear a specific effect on that yeah i definitely hear that um just knowing that they really don't like to mess with pedals and like processed effects um just from listening to it my guess would be although you could be right i my guess is uh that they use kind of like a room or a far away mic outside of the room uh maybe with the door open because there's kind of like a two to three millisecond delay on that so it's it acts like a slap echo essentially so that's how it sounds to me that's really interesting but, um yeah i mean like you said rules are made to be broken and there's definitely like times that you can cite them mentioning that they don't like to use effects and like effects processing, like pedals and stuff like that. So um, that would be my guess. Yeah. It's also, it also sounds pretty compressed um, compared to a lot of their guitar sounds. I was just earlier this week listening to nowhere man by the Beatles. And I decided that that solo kind of reminds me of this one. It's just like so compressed and jangly um like as a as an effect more so than just a you know studio make this sound nice tool totally um i agree and it's also weird to hear ian side playing distorted power chords underneath that solo but have it be so quiet and mellow you know yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah so it creates this really cool thing because ever since from way back, uh, they've always had their mellow songs. They've always had their groovy or their like slowly turning the screw or the slow burn type as they move through all the different versions of their slow jams. But uh, on the argument, they got to this new level of groovy that I don't think was quite as far as they took it, you know, then on the argument. And I think Life and Limb is one of the most prime examples of that yeah it's it is groovy it's a little a little sexy even this song um yeah there's totally sexy vibes about it yeah Um, yeah and i was also going to say real quick um what you were talking about uh gee's guitar part it it really does sound like to me like he wrote the verse vocal part around that guitar line just the way they like stick together hmm. um already he, as we all know, he's a master of singing halftones. Like he's constantly sliding, bending, literally singing halftones. Like, and there's no one else I can think of that can make it work. And even with that, oftentimes he has this really unique way of hearing these sort of atonal vocals a lot of the times that he's making, but they have a consistency to them. And uh, I always imagine him having written the uh, verse vocal parts around the actual guitar line. I don't know if that's actually true though. Yeah, I can hear that for sure. And something that goes into what you're saying there is to speak a little bit about how they would play this song live. Um, I, I had a couple of comments of that uh, on that based on a couple of versions that I looked at, listened to. Um, one is that uh, as much as I love Fugazi as a live band, I've said this before, but one of my only complaints about how they did things live is that on Guy's more chill songs, 
often he would like sing them too high and that that applies to this too it's it's like uh because yeah i agree it seems like the vocals were very intentionally written around that guitar line and it doesn't quite work for me when he sort of sings it live a little bit higher um i don't know it totally clashes to my ear yeah i know what you mean it's already such a a a delicate balance that we get used to on recording and i think that's the difficult part of having a vocal styling like he does i think it's similar to rappers who don't know where to keep their air at the same level when they're on stage and moving around as opposed to them sitting totally still listening to themselves really clearly and loudly in their headphones recording this vocal part yeah and the context could not be more opposite when you get on a stage in front of a bunch of people and uh yeah that must be tough and i don't i don't really like that sound either <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that was notable to me live is when he goes for that guitar solo it's a much more saturated sound like he really clicks on the distortion box and mm-hmm. it's it's really singing and something about that maybe it's just because i recorded an episode with uh, pete fraser who's this great saxophone player but all of a sudden with that sort of tone on it sounded like a sax solo to me and listening back to this like you could totally like if if a different artist recorded this song you could totally hear a sax doing that solo and i can't unhear that now so now i i don't know if i can unhear that now <laughs> just not cuz you're right yeah. Yeah, it could totally be. Or, you know, uh, for a long time when I was listening to this in the car on Not A Great System, uh, I thought it was a synth. And that blew my mind because I'm like, wow, Fugazi is using a synth. (laughs) Is that allowed? Yeah, exactly. Like, is the universe going to end now? Like, what? (laughs) And, of course, something we have to mention in the middle of that guitar solo, there's just two hand claps. Yeah. Which is wonderful. (laughs) that's one of the things i was watching a a video of them doing this live and sort of looking out for what would happen when they got to that part and you can see one person in the crowd put their hands over their head and do clap clap in the middle of the guitar solo like like that guy knows what's up (laughs) yeah i would have done the claps (laughs) it's yeah it's lovely i love a hand clap in a song but just like to have those two isolated ones in the middle of the solo and at the very end of the song and nowhere else it's a nice choice. <laughs> it is because uh, there couldn't be a band that I would think would want hand claps less than Fugazi. And for them to place them in such a groovy a groovy tune was cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, it. I mean, it reminds me of one of my very favorite Gee songs, uh, Public Witness Program. There's sort of hand claps during the breakdown part of that yeah and i I, right that's always been one of my favorite parts of that song and i you know get really into it when the occasions i saw them live and i would be clapping along and i just remember having a lot of fun with that so maybe a little bit of a callback to that yeah i'm public witness program one of my top five favorite songs nice you know what i would i'm probably there with you we haven't gotten to it yet so spoiler alert but it's one of my favorites um how about uh what do you think about the lyrics to this song steve they make any sense to you in a specific sort of way you know i think that they're the type of lyrics where it would be easy to you know interpret it in multiple ways and i've certainly done that but 
if I'm being completely honest, uh, I don't really know. I get ideas, but I just kind of, you know. <laughs> um, it's uh, So there's a little bit of help here courtesy of uh, Fugazi live show expert Yunter Hobbits who commented on the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page. I was asking our listeners about if they had comments for this episode. Uh, so his comment says, I love Guy's vocal delivery, love the lyrical eloquence, love the backup vocals, love the build-up, love Joe's bass playing, uh, tying it all in, love the clapping, love the song. There's a cool show from the 2002 tour in Louisville, Kentucky, where Guy elaborates, and he quotes here, uh, Guy says, We got up in the hotel this morning and we turned on the TV just in time to see George Bush come out and talk about the Middle East situation. He gave a very inspiring speech, I thought, saying a lot of stuff that, uh, I mean, it's a lot of platitudes without any, uh, I honestly do not think these people want this shit to end. I honestly do not think these people want this shit to end because it enables us to continue the concept that we must police the world, that we must produce weapons to police the world, that we must sell weapons to police the world. The situation, it makes me fucking, it makes me sick. This is a song about how violence recycles itself. It's a song called Life and Limb. And then they play the song. Mm. So that's as far as I've been able to um, find from the mouth of Guy Pichotto himself what this song is about. Um, And it's certainly the the line, we want our violence doubled, reflects that, right? Yeah, um, this is definitely showing me that this was a case of me overthinking it because obviously that would be where my mind went first. (laughs) But then I would say, come on, he wouldn't be so blatant in metaphor, assuming that he was even trying to speak in metaphor, which he probably is not. Uh, For me, like one of the most telling lines now that I know that it has that context has always been the national temper. You know, it's written on your face. Mm -hmm. Um, What I specifically would always think it was, was talking about media shows like cops, uh, reality TV based around this same sort of stuff. Um, Although this album was kind of put out and written at the beginning of all that stuff getting popular. I don't know, like, you know, how hip to that stuff he was. So that's kind of how I interpreted it. But, you know, hearing that straight from his mouth, it makes a lot of sense. Now the song makes a lot of sense. The the line right after that too, etched and scratched and mirrored back, don't you know it's all the rage. That's a nice double meaning sort of almost pun on, you know, all the rage, meaning the current trend, but also right. anger. Just like that's yeah. the national temper is anger. And yeah. yeah, it seems like for a long time that rings true. Like we we are not uh, a nation of much fellow feeling right now, it seems. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I mean, it's a longstanding tradition of, you know, punk bands in general, but Fugazi in particular, to talk about mechanisms of control that the powers that be have over the populace um and it, yeah it sounds to me like in this song in particular it's it's a mecha- mechanism not not so overt as like the physical force of police and whatever but the, a more subtle sort of critique of politicians and me- media perhaps um keeping people i don't know invested in 
a feeling of anger, a feeling of wanting violence either toward each other, people on the other side of the political aisle, or or an international sort of belligerence that was definitely top of mind for Fugazi when writing the arguments and, you know, the, the title track too, of course. Yeah, which is kind of eerie how prophetic it is because surely this was had to have been written still before 9-11 happened. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what was to come and how it pertains to these lyrics is, <laughs> it's eerie how prophetic it was, man. Eerie, eerie's the word for it, for sure. Yeah, it like irks me, legit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like you, I don't feel it as though I have a super coherent read on the lyrics other than the the broader feelings that I talked about. Um, but a couple of images from the lines, you know, when the bit pulls tight, the grip is sewn into the reins. This is, of course, imagery of, of a horse's tack, um, the bit mm-hmm. being the the piece that rests in the horse's mouth so that the rider can, you know, control the horse's head, basically, with the reins, right. force the horse to to look where the rider wants it to look, to go where the rider wants it to go. Um, I'm I'm not a horseman myself, but this is my understanding. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> a boil-in bag blood supply. That's so interesting. I really I can't quite get a read on it, but it seems to seems to invoke this image of of like a you know, if, if you're hooked up to an IV and you're getting a blood transfusion or something, uh, juxtapose that with, you know, like boiling bag rice. And um, right. what, I, what I assume is being gotten at here is, again, that, that rage, that feeling of anger and someone's blood boiling as a cliche for feeling anger, but here a little bit repurposed into this medical imagery and like having this angry blood being fed into your veins by, again, by politicians, media, what have you. Ah, that's interesting. I I kind of always imagine that as referring to, because obviously boil in bag, I think of food also. Uh, but I always thought of it as boil in bag blood supply. So we have a bloodlust and we need it to be commoditized and made convenient like most things in America. Yeah. I think that goes hand in hand for sure. For it's, sure. Um, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we, there's maybe that's, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, major um, organized sports are so popular. It's like this mostly bloodless way to sate this um, desire that we have, not only Americans, but, you know, people around the world for like, for conflict and for, for fighting, for physical altercation. Yeah, I think it hits at something very primitive, which is our tribal instincts in all of us. Yeah. On like a socio-anthropological level, like uh, because it gives people a prepackaged way to kind of tribe up. And I think that there's a real strong need for that. And there always has been. And when it comes to the chorus of this song, the Viva, 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 that's that's like a nationalistic chant, right? That's like that's a part of something that you would say um to you know as you alluded to the word tribal, right? Like it's that is how you express solidarity 
with your countrymen, your people, like Viva Viva something. And here it's like it's talking about a way of life that's violence, basically, like long live violence and uh, and anger and fear. Yeah, that's kind of how I take it, too. Uh, yeah, basically, Viva, if he's using the Spanish, Viva is live. Yeah. So, yeah, live, 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 life and limb. Yeah, I guess me too. I I have that kind of uh, association with revolutionary movements specifically. Yeah. When I hear Viva, Viva, yeah. So, I think maybe the most mysterious part of the lyrics is Bridget's backing vocal after Guy says, we want our violence doubled. She says, no, but really in a loving way. And yeah. Yeah, I'm not totally sure how to take that. I mean, maybe just that um, expressing the idea that we love violence, we love anger, and that's like, it's, oh. <laughs> we've been Stockholm yeah. syndromed into like not being able to live without it somehow. Yeah. Well, now that I've had kind of like the general context of interpretation confirmed by that kind of what Guy was saying at that show, uh, it makes it, if I was going with that, it makes it clear to me that uh, that could mean like the sort of propaganda that is spun on top of the sort of war machine or the military industrial complex that is such a huge part of our form of business in America is always trying to attach this sort of compassionate, we are the good guy stepping in sort of narrative on everything. Yeah. And so, especially in terms of kind of exploiting certain conflicts and areas for this country's own gain, uh, they definitely have done that a lot. And that's now with that new information, those lyrics kind of read that way to me now, but like, no, but really in a loving way. And it's like my, I'm not going to get too into politics, but if I were to have criticisms of the Democratic Party right now is that they still are only just trying to spin this facade of having this compassion for these issues while all of their policies and especially financial uh, directives and motivations are clearly not that and are clearly wanting the violence doubled mm -hmm. as he sings, you know? <laughs> um. I first of all, I think it's totally fair to get political on this podcast. <laughs> it's part I and guess you can't discuss it. Fugazi without it, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, doing the podcast at the time that I'm doing it, I've I've been unable to refrain from commenting on Donald Trump a lot of the time, even though obviously this was written long before he was a force in American politics. Uh, yeah. But yet, that line does make me think of it because as as sort of violent as a lot of his rhetoric and policies were, like, think about how much he would say the word love to his audience and how much he would say the word beautiful, right? Like, he, he would constantly yeah. tell his people, like, oh, you know, we love you, you're beautiful, um, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I picture that coming out of his mouth a lot, uh, maybe surprising amount compared to what it all boiled down to. And yeah. I find it really disturbing. <laughs> I find it disturbing too. I hear it like someone who is abusive or manipulative would say it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thankfully, uh, we're finished with that era. 
for now and hopefully for good. <laughs> yeah, I hope for those same things very much. Just to read off a few other listener comments, Will Rockwell Scott says, a really beautiful and understated drum performance on this one. Also, perhaps the closest Fugazi came to having a guitar solo in any of their songs. Yeah, that's true. I I, I don't think I'd really thought about that, but yeah, is there is there more of a guitar solo in any other Fugazi song? Hmm. Mm, I mean, not that they don't double. Like, I think it's Bed for Scraping that has. Yeah, that's the al- guitar line. Although that's yeah, that's almost just more like a. Almost more like a riff than a solo, right? And yeah, it is because uh, it's they're both playing it. Yeah, yeah it's, so it seems it seems more rhythmic and repeating than and whereas this is you know has a melody, it goes places. No, I think that he might have a point. Yeah, um, that was the only thing that I could think of that could even be mistaken for a guitar solo. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, yeah, good point, Will. That's that's super interesting about this song. Brian Ex Officio says, best Slater Kinney cover ever about this song, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> Do you hear that, Steve? No, but I hear the shade that he's throwing. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I replied to that and I said, you know, asking if he had anything particular in mind, but there's a song called Little Babies that Slater Kinney did that immediately sprang to mind when I read that comment. I was like, oh yeah, I can I can see a little parallel there. It's a great song. I've always loved that song of theirs, but I really never made the connection. Yeah, that's true, actually. And I think that, you know, if I'm being honest, uh, I could hear it, especially on Dig Me Out. I could hear a lot of that influence with uh, Fugazi in particular. I don't know whether they've actually ever cited Fugazi as an influence, but uh, if I stop to think about it, yeah, I can dig that comment for (laughs) sure. Yeah. J.J. Sorensen says, The music on this song reminds me of a carousel. The bass and guitar feel like they're spinning in a kind of dizzy, dreamy, carnival-like effect. There's really no other Fugazi song like this one. Gotta love the clap-clap. Bradford Reed Goodwin says, Always imagine this as a short film about the Marlboro Man dying of lung cancer in a veteran's hospital as he mentally (laughs) packs his cigarettes while waiting for a nurse to attend him. He sees wounded and maimed vets returning from risking life and limb in Iraq and realizes that war is an addiction and that makes him really, really want to smoke. Wow. <laughs> That's an amazing treatment for a music video for this I song. was just thinking Actually. that. We sh- they should go back and, you know, uh, you know credit Bradford for, uh, for the idea for a music video that they can make about this. Get, get Jem Cohen to direct. It sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah I... I can really relate to that sort of imagery. Uh, Musically, this song has always conjured vibes of like an art thief, like a high-level art thief for me. Interesting, yeah. (laughs) A little bit of a Thomas Crown affair. Yeah, somewhere in between there, yeah. I love a good art theft. That and a jewel heist. If If I ever read in the news about an art theft or a jewel heist where nobody got hurt, like they didn't murder anybody to do it. I'm like, that is, that's a very cool crime, man. Same here. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best kind of crime. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not going to stand here and say, uh, and be soft on crime. And, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> if you have to commit a crime, that's a cool one to do. <laughs> yeah. And you could, uh, put the icing or sorry, the cherry on top of the icing on the cake 
<laughs> if you were to appropriate those funds from that art theft towards like charitable causes and people that needed it more. Exactly. Modern day Robin Hood. For um, real. Uh, former guest James Vitito, he he goes under the str- screen name Vita Viva as sort of as a as a shout out to this song. Um, to just to excerpt his comment, he says, "Viva is an expression of goodwill, a joyous celebration, coupled here with life and limb, a sentiment of great bodily risk, and threatening comes across as a welcoming of a potentially self-destructive bloodlust, one that is seen as so necessary that it's a loving gesture." Violence is the desired response to the national sentiment as orchestrated by the unnamed ones who control the reins. I feel like the argument foresaw the coming surveillance state and the political discord that has grown so prevalent in society. Eerily, these songs were composed and recorded in a pre-9-11 world, but so perfectly capture the aftermath of the tragedy. American society has always had a violent edge and an often celebrated one. Life and Limb illustrates this perfectly in a beautiful, constructed pop song. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a nice point, uh, and like especially um, w- bringing that line in a loving way as like talking about how uh, military aggression is is necessary, right? And that's still that's something that drives me so crazy is like um, you know uh, I people who are you know the, those those sorts of um, military veterans who feel really entitled about their service um, and yeah. it, as if as if everyone owes them everything for like quote unquote defending the country <laughs> yeah. as if yeah. like they did what they did out of love for a country that needs to be defended as if we're on the verge of being invaded or something. It's like <laughs> right. the, the idea that we go to war and uh, take these police actions really for the safety of citizens here is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. It's naive at best. And uh, it's also cool to hear that he finds it eerie as well the sort of prophetic nature of not just this song but the album and when i think about it the cover as well <laughs> now the yeah. way it's all tying together so yeah you know the cover as far back as the episode we did on the song argument i was thinking about that and um i don't think i had an answer at a time at the time but more and more it seems to me like that image of the cover of the argument where it's, it's two hands outstretched and one is holding a, a torch of fire and one has this open hand. One is open accepting, the other is using fire, which could be a weapon of war uh, in some kind of like metaphorical imagery kind of way. Represents a choice and America almost every time chooses war, it seems. Oh, that's a cool interpretation of it. Yeah. yeah. I guess... That was probably the cover was designed by Jem Cohen. Um, maybe I'll, if I get an opportunity to talk to him at some point, could pick his brain about that. That would be cool. That would be so cool because I've wondered about that the like the most. I've pondered yeah. the cover so much because uh, to me it looks like both of the arms coming off of the Lady Justice, yeah, uh, image, um, and your interpretation. Yeah, I can dig that. I can really dig that. Cool. Well. Steve, how much can you dig the song, though? Let's talk about ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? On this podcast, the most difficult part is every Fugazi song, we like to rate it from a scale of one to five stars, only in the context of uh, Fugazi songs. So um, from your least favorite to your most favorite, do you think you could assign a rating to Life and Limb? 
I could, and I think I would give it a three and a half stars if that's possible. Just because while I appreciate everything about it, and it's never a track that I skip, um, I only don't I I don't give it a higher rating just because of the sort of place that it lives for most of the song. It's a very linear song. Um, and the groove stays the same and I can appreciate it, but it's one of the songs that I kind of don't actively listen to. I'm kind of passively listening to it, if that makes sense. Whereas, uh, a lot of other, uh, tunes I'm a lot more engaged with. So I think that would be my rating for it. That's very interesting. I feel much the same. I think this is going to be one of those episodes where I and my guests, uh, come to an accord on the rating. I'll go 3.5 stars too. It's um nice. yeah and and of course that's one of the really nice things about doing this podcast is it forces me to go to those Fugazi songs that I listen to passively usually and just be really active about it and it's it's always rewarding that's one of the great things about this band Totally and just this conversation has been so rewarding and kind of feeling like I understand the album and the song in a new way cuz you've given me so much new information too so thank you Oh, you're very welcome, Steve, and thank you. It's it's great to hear that. Um, so I'd like to give you an opportunity to do any kind of plugs that you might want to do. Um, where can listeners reach you? I know you have you have so many projects that you've been involved with and are involved with now. Um, what should listeners check out from you? I guess you first things first. You can check out. Uh, my main band, RX Bandits, if you're interested. Um, we're heavily influenced by Fugazi. You can check out my podcast called The Musician's Guild. It's available on all and any podcast platform. And if you do the social media thing, um, I'm RX Choi, so that's R-X-C-H-O-I, on Instagram and Twitter. And that's about it. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Steve. Really cool to talk to you, and I've been enjoying the podcast. So yeah, uh, recommended listeners. Check it out. And as always, you can reach me at fugaziatoz at gmail.com for all your correspondence needs, whatever they may be. You can also join the Facebook group, The Alphabetical Fugazi, and you'll be able to uh, say what you will and give your wild theories about the next song that I'll be asking the group about. Um, Always welcome what you have to say, for sure. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of this show when we will be discussing lockdown. Until then, keep your eyes open. <laughs>